Well, we are back in our study of the forerunners of the faith on this beautiful Sunday morning at FBC Edna. It is a joy to be back with each of you young men and women to see what our Lord has in store as we continue our study of the patristic era of church history. As you'll recall today, we're going to be studying Lesson 4, which is titled Contending for the Faith, and the subheading listed as Justin, Irenaeus, and the Pre-Nicene Church. You'll notice I've also given you guys this really bizarre-looking chart. Many of you guys have already uh, asked me kind of what this chart is referring to, and I want to let you know I got this from my church history notes that I obtained through the Master's Seminary. You'll notice that you have several of the apostles and first-century Christians that we're very familiar with. you got Mark, Paul, Peter, John, Timothy, and Clement of Rome, who though he's not an apostle or um, not an author of a New Testament writing, he was very involved during the first century church, as we talked about a few weeks back. And you'll also notice, in addition to those figures there from the first century, you have several other figures included as well, extending all the way into the middle of the third century. Some of these figures we're going to spend time discussing today. We spent some time in our previous lessons discussing figures like Polycarp, Papias, and Ignatius. Some of these guys we probably won't study at all, um, but I wanted you guys to have this chart just so you have an idea of how each of these prominent figures in early church history related to the apostles and earliest Christians, some of which we spent quite a bit of time learning about thus far in our studies of forerunners of the faith. So you guys hold on to that. It'll be useful probably over the next several weeks as we continue to work our way through the patristic age. And then when we transition into the medieval time, uh, hopefully I'll have some more charts and handouts to give you guys, and, and that'll help make sense of some of the figures that we're going to be learning about during that era as well. Well, with that in mind, by way of introduction, as usual, I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer. And since we're beginning a new lesson, you'll notice that at the top left-hand corner of Lesson 4, the, at the first page, the key passage is listed as Jude verses 3 and 4. And of course, Jude is just one chapter, so um, it doesn't have the, the one and the colon there. It just says Jude 3-4. Hannah already had her hand up. She already knew what I was going to ask. So after I pray, Hannah, you can read that for us. And then what we're going to do, just to give you guys a heads up, is we're going to take some time to engage in a little bit of observation. We're going to look at that key passage, and we're going to make some observations from the text. I want to give you guys the opportunity to put into practice some of the principles that we've been learning about over the last year or so. How do you take a passage and derive data from it? How do you make observations from a passage of Scripture? We're going to practice that here by way of introduction. So let me pray. Hannah, you'll read that passage, and then we'll uh, make some observations from it after doing so. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are filled with joy this morning to be gathered together as brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, he is here with us by your Holy Spirit that dwells in all believers. And what a blessing it is to have your Holy Spirit, to be able to have intimate communion and fellowship with you, and to be able to be further conformed into the moral character of our Lord and Savior, the one who is the goal of the Old Testament, and as the New Testament demonstrates, he fulfilled everything he came into this world to do, and he should be the goal of our lives, Lord. He, he should be at the forefront of of our thoughts, of our words, of our actions, and so often we fall short. And God, we're grateful for your mercy and grace to uphold us and sustain us, even in our sin on this side of our salvation. Father, we just ask that you would put into our heart a zeal for truth and a desire to pursue Christ with every aspect of our life and with every fiber of our being. Would these studies be a means of encouraging us and sharpening us to those ends? And Father, as we transition from this time of discipleship, this time of study, and prepare our hearts to worship you corporately later this morning, we pray, Father, that you would continue to work mightily in this church to ensure that we are rooted and grounded upon your word as our ultimate authority for life and godliness so that we would be the people you've called us to be in Christ individually, corporately, and before a watching community and world. 
Bless this time of study now. We ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hannah, take it away. Licentiousness. Very good. Thank you for reading that, Hannah. So what observations do you guys make from that key passage at the outset of Lesson 4? What are some aspects, words, concepts of that passage that stood out to you? I made seven. I'm sure there's more, but I want to hear you guys... Take that passage apart a little bit and talk about what's being said there by Jude. So let's just start with words. What what are some words there? Phrases. Licentiousness, yeah. What do you think that means? I don't know. I think it's negative. Yeah. Yeah. Licentiousness essentially just means an excuse to uh, sin, an excuse to transgress. Um, It's typically associated with behavior that is um, morally promiscuous. It can be sexual in nature. It can be um, rebellious in nature. It can be um, anything from, you know, disrespectful to... Um, engaging, again, like I said, sexual immorality. It can be um, justifying ungodly and unbiblical lifestyles. It's, a, it's pretty much an all-encompassing wor- a word to, to, um, <clears throat> to emphasize that, as you see in context, the grace of our God is turned into a license, licentiousness, it's turned into an excuse or an avenue for practicing ungodly or unrighteous behaviors. And again, it has, historically, typically it has certain connotations to it, but broadly speaking, it's it's essentially just a license for sin, an excuse to commit acts of ungodliness, to transgress God's law. But that's a good word, certainly. And that was part of a observation I made, well, I'll share mine with you after we have this time to share as a group. But um, when you see that word in its broader context, I think it'll it'll really make a lot of sense to you guys. Any other words, concepts? If you don't have a Bible, uh, you probably won't have much success making observations. If you don't have the passage pulled up in front of you, That's, I was going to say, where are we? Like, what yeah, Jude uh, three and four. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of goes without saying. It's, it's going to be hard to make some observations without the passage open in front of you. So I think everybody has a cell phone, so you, you probably have the ability to have a Bible in front of you. What are some? What are some concepts? What are some words? Some phrases? Yeah, contend earnestly for the faith. What do you think? That is a reference to. What do you think of when you hear contend for the faith? Yeah, advocate for it. That's a good word. What does that mean, Hannah? To advocate for something. Yeah. So what is another A word that we've learned about? Apocalypse. What's another A word that we've learned about in our classes and our studies together that has to do with contending for the faith or defending the faith? Apologetics, right? So um, that's one of the um, observations I made from the text. Appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. I I take that 
Uh, and many commentators would take that as a reference to apologetics, which is the discipline of defending the Christian faith. Um, and the term earnestly indicates that Christians should be passionate about their defense of the faith. Christians should be passionate about their standing up for truth. So that's certainly a, a good observation from the text. And Hannah, just because we already went there earlier, I'm gonna, I don't want to take up too much time by going through all of my observations after y'all share in case you hit on them. But um, turning the grace of God into licentiousness and denying our only master and savior, Jesus Christ, I noted that false teachers and false converts are exposed by their lifestyle of sin or by their commitment to false or heretical doctrine that usurps the lordship of Jesus Christ. So um, I think we could even say licentiousness could even be an excuse for heretical doctrine or for heterodox theology. Um, The grace of God becomes a license for us not holding to sound biblical truth, right? Hey, if God's going to forgive me, if, if God is all loving and he's gracious and merciful, does it really matter what we believe? I mean, I can believe whatever I want to believe, right? That could be used as a license or an excuse for sin. What other words or phrases stand out there? And this is good. Like, this may be even more important than anything else we discuss today because this is at the core level. This is studying the Word of God for yourself. This is the tool that if you forget everything that I teach you, if you forget everything that we've ever studied in youth, this is the tool I want you to take with you from this place to college, to your workplace environment, to your families. How do I read the Bible for myself? Mm. Once for all handed down to the saints. I think that kind of like drives home the point that like Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Yeah. Right? And handed down to the saints. What does that indicate, Hannah? Yeah, the faith being handed down to the saints. <laughs> well, no, your point I think your point is absolutely correct, but what do you what do you think of if something's being passed along from one person to another person? Yeah, they've handed down what from the apostles? Their their teaching, right? The faith that's been once for all handed down, right? So you think of something going from one generation to another generation to another generation. Um, And and what have we been studying about this entire, I guess now since August, it's been five, six months now. What have we been studying in Forerunners of the Faith? The The history of the church, right? So Jude is saying that Hey, the Christian faith, it's a historical faith. It's a shared faith. It's been passed down all the way from its inception, and it's going to continually be passed down and shared from one generation of believers to the next. It's a historic faith. It's a shared faith at every, at every period of church history by true believers. So you guys believe, that, think about this. You share the same faith that Polycarp of Smyrna shared that we learned about last week. You share the same faith as Ignatius and Clement and Paul. It's the same faith. It goes back 2,000 years. Let me just be uh, maybe, maybe a little, um, I don't know what the right adjective would be, uh, maybe clever here. You share the same faith that Adam and Eve shared. Your faith goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because you have trusted that God will provide the means of bringing about your forgiveness of sins and the salvation that you need to escape his wrath, his judgment for your sins. Adam and Eve had that faith by God's grace. If you have that faith today, you share their faith. Millennia has passed from thousands of years before. What other observations? I think we've hit on three of the seven that I've found, the ones that stood out to me. Condemnation. Okay, yeah, condemnation. What is that little look? And, and guys, remember, when you're studying, words are important, but phrases, right? When you see a comma, look at clauses. Those are so important because it gives you a broader context to understand the words. Sai, what is that phrase? I see the word condemnation, but read that entire clause 
Read the, read the train of thought that Jude is developing there. Start with the word for, right? That's the beginning of the sentence in which that clause is found. It's all one thought. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, in unnoticed those who were long before and marked out for this condemnation. Okay, great. So, in context, right? He's just said contend earnestly for the saint, or contend earnestly for the faith that's been once for all handed down to the saints, right? So I want you to contend for that. For, what does for indicate? Coming right off the heels of that. What is the word for, therefore, so that? Reason, Reason, purpose, right? So here's why I want you to do it. This is why I want you to contend earnestly for that faith that's been passed down from one generation of Christians to the next. I want you to do it, Jude says, because certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And who are these people? Those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. And then Jude goes further. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, which Hannah pointed to earlier. But we've already talked about the final clause of that sentence. That previous clause, those certain persons who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Sai, you made that observation. What do you think Jude is saying there? Yeah. I don't know. What's that? You don't you don't know what he's saying there? What do you think he's saying, Wit? I think he's saying that like these things that were like uh these people that do these things that used to definitely like not be acceptable have like it's becoming more acceptable because they're like using God to kind of like God's grace to kind of reason yeah. for their yeah, I think that's definitely a connotation from, from that pa- uh, part of the passage there. But I, I really want us to nail in on that phrase that Sai touched on. Those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. These are, these are these persons who've crept in unnoticed. And they have denied Jesus Christ. They've turned the grace of God into an excuse for sin, into a license for sin, and, and, and false doctrine, and so on. Hannah. Is it saying that they've crept into the church unnoticed? Yes. But like they've also like publicly denied Jesus? Mm-hmm. That's how they do that. How they go in yeah, how do you think that happens? That's a great thought. Right. So let's 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 focus maybe back up. We'll come back to the observation about long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. So cert, here, here's one of my observations. I, I highlighted the the phrases certain persons, ungodly persons and crept in unnoticed. OK, and these are just my thoughts. I'll share them with you. We can flesh them out a little bit. These are references to false teachers and false converts who've disguised themselves in the church for a season. They may be able to look the part and play the game for a season, but eventually such people will be exposed by their deeds. As the old saying goes, time and truth goes hand in hand. And what are the deeds? As Jude said at the end of verse 4, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. How were they exposed? They turned the grace of God into an excuse for sin. God is loving It doesn't matter what we believe. We just got to believe in Jesus and God loves us no matter what. Hey, the grace of God is an excuse for sin. What's that technical term? It's it's contrasted to legalism, anti-nomianism. Write that one down. You guys remember that. These are crucial terms, right? Legalism are those who turn the law of God as a means to obtain self-righteousness, right? I got to keep this set of rules so I can be righteous in the sight of God. Antinomianism, on the other hand, is, well, God is loving, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's going to forgive me. So I'll just sin and, you know, God's just going to forgive me for it. That's just who he is. And that's exactly what Paul refutes in Romans 6. He says, should we sin all the more so grace may abound? May it never be. He uses the strongest negative in Greek. He says, the grace of God should motivate you to live a lifestyle of holiness because you're grateful for what he's done for you and saving you from your sin. So, 
and, and just break down the word. Anti against nomos or nomian. Nomianism, because ism is a belief, right? So nomian, law. So the word for the Greek word for law is nomos. So anti, nomian, law, ism, belief. Against the belief of God's law. So antinomianism. There's the word for you. Um, anyways, so uh, and that's been a huge issue today in many churches. It's the idea that Hey, I've, I've said the prayer, I've walked the aisle, I give money to the church, I've been baptized, I've done all I can do, and now I'm going to live however I want to live, because I'm in. And Jude says that such a lifestyle makes a person ungodly, it, dicta- it indicates that they have turned the grace of God into licentiousness, and the ultimate outcome is whether verbally or in their lifestyle pattern, they deny the Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, we've now covered one, two, three, four. We've covered four observations that I noted. I'm sure there's more, but let's, let's keep going. I don't care if we really get into much of the historical weeds today because this is, this is an important practice. I'm glad we did this today. We need to spend more time doing this, I think. Yeah, yeah, you want to go there right now? Yeah, I think All right. I feel like that's kind of pointing towards like the sovereignty of God and like his will, how it's been established since you know before. That's what I was looking for. That's what I was looking for. Long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Let me share a frightening truth, a sobering truth, a God-centered truth. In God's mysterious providence, He has appointed the condemnation of every false teacher and every false convert from before the foundation of the world, yet without making Himself the author of their sin or unbelief. Romans 9.22, 1 Peter 2.7 and 8, and many other places. This passage... Um, What that should cause us to do, my friends, it should cause us to fall on our face before God and acknowledge our utter dependency upon His grace to sustain us in our faith at every moment. Jude is is saying, hey guys, these people who came in and played church and, and deceived all of us and have now turned the grace of God into an excuse for sin and who have... Um, deny Jesus either verbally or through their lifestyle of sin. They didn't fool God. They may have fooled us. They didn't fool God. Not only did he know about these people, he marked them out from before the foundation of the world for his own purpose and for his own glory. That is a God-centered truth. And that's a hard truth for many to swallow, even many well-meaning Christians. But you have to allow God to be God based on how he has revealed himself in his word. He's a big God. He is absolutely sovereign. He is holy, holy, holy. And he has the right to do whatever he pleases in creation. We have to submit ourselves to that. Humble ourselves to that reality. So we've touched on five of the seven that I've made. And I'm sure there's more if you want to identify any other ones. Um, What else stands out to you from this text? I've told you all the story, right, about the seminary professor who he told his students to make 50 observations from a text and they made 50 and they came back he said all right um next week you got to make 50 more so they start panicking and they, they they all get together and they're working so hard they and they scratch and claw and they get another 50 observations and then the seminary professor says great you have made 100 observations from this passage now go back and make 50 more <laughs> and after doing that he finally said okay guys there's not a whole lot left you can probably exhaust, at least from our finite human perspective, but I wanted you guys to learn how to dig into a passage. That's what we're doing here. I mean, we've only touched on five. I'm sure there's a lot more, a lot more connotations, a lot more observations and applications that could be made. But what about, let me give you one. What about the word beloved? Right there at the very beginning. A little word, but an important word. What do you think beloved indicates? He's addressing these people as beloved. Jude, of course, right? Do you all know who Jude was? He is the half-brother of Jesus, related to James, who wrote the book of James. So, he's a believer. 
at this point. He wasn't a believer during Jesus' ministry. He and James and all of his other siblings thought Jesus was crazy. Go read about it in the Gospel of Mark. So he's, he's the uh, son of Joseph and Mary. But, of course, God, uh, Jesus is God's son, so Joseph didn't have sexual relations with Mary to allow Jesus to be born. So he's, he's, a, he's half-brother by virtue of them being... By virtue of them having Mary as a common mother. Yeah. So, um, anyways, Jude, right? Believer, obviously, for him to write a letter that's preserved in the New Testament, he would have at least had a pretty significant level of authority. He wasn't an apostle, but he was a leader in the church, clearly. He wrote this letter. He had authority. And he's addressing them as beloved, what do you think about there? Beloved. Paul does it in Ephesians. I'm sure Peter does it and John does it also. I can't think of verses off the top of my head, but many New Testament books, there's these references to beloved. We know in James, the, the, the phrase he likes to use, addressing to his readers, brethren, my brethren. What do you think that's a reference to? What was that, Michael? Well, yeah, siblings in Christ. What do you mean? But what, do you, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so those who have made professions of faith in Jesus, right? So he's writing to those whom he, has, who he, he knows, he has identified them as having made professions of faith in Christ. Now it's interesting, as we just talked about with those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. He juxtaposes, he contrasts the beloved who he's writing to in this letter from those certain persons that he references just one verse later. So there's even a contrast there. He said, you guys, I believe you're the real deal. You're not like these other people who deceived you guys. They crept into the church unnoticed, and now they've denied Jesus, and they've turned the grace of God into a license or an excuse for transgressions. You guys, I have confidence that you are the real deal. You are believers. You are my brethren. You're beloved of me. You're beloved of God. You're his people. I think that's an interesting observation to make from this text. There's just one other one, though, and I want to see if one of you guys can find it, at least one other significant one that it kind of goes hand-in-hand with the observation that Hannah made. It's right before contend earnestly for the faith. Felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend. Necessity and appealing. So... According to Jude, the task of defending the Christian faith, it's necessary. He's saying, I have to write, I wanted to write to you about something completely different, but like you guys need to, he says, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. I was going to write to you about the the co-union, the common salvation we have in Christ. That's what I wanted to write to you about. But he says, I felt that it was necessary to write to you that you contend earnestly for the faith. And he says that he's doing it as an appeal. He's saying, like, it's necessary, and I'm begging you to do this. I believe it's necessary, and just to show you how much I believe it's necessary, I'm essentially going to beg you to contend, beg you to defend the truth of God. It's vital that you do this, says Jude. Any other thoughts or comments about this text? I know we've spent, we've literally now spent about 25 minutes on it, and I know that um, means we're probably not going to get through a whole lot of today's lesson, which is fine. I, I really wanted us to have a chance to break down the Word of God. But do you have any questions or thoughts on um, this text or any observations that we made? If you do, if you want me to clarify something I've said, I, I'll be more than happy to do that to the best of my ability. If you're ready to move on, we can, we can move on. All right, let's move on. Roman numeral one, right there at the beginning of lesson four. Buznitz writes, by way of introduction, he says, From the very beginning, the church has faced threats from both without and within. Externally, the church has endured opposition and persecution from both proponents of false religion and hostile governments. Internally, the church has been threatened by false teachers. They claim to be part of the church, but promote doctrine or practice that is antithetical to genuine Christianity. Now, let's stop there. 
And I know you guys are ready to fill in those two blanks for the three girls that brought their workbooks today. Uh, I want to, I, I know you're just, you're, you've got your pen out, you're just waiting. What are those words? We're going to get to them. Uh, but I, I want us to stop real quick and, and talk about a question that I think really relates well to what Dr. Buznitz is opening us up with here in our introduction to lesson four. Here's my question. Here's my thought that I want us to discuss. Given the current state of American Christianity, what do you think is the greatest threat to the church? Do you think it's external attacks or internal controversies? Remember, he's just said externally, historically, the church has been oppressed by persecution from false religion and government. Right, that's an external threat. But Buznitz also notes that internally, the church has been threatened by false teachers and by false doctrine, by false lifestyle practices. So, what do you guys think? What's the greatest threat right now, today, inside or outside the church? Where do you think it comes from? Inside, Lily. I I completely get what you're saying. I think it's I think it's beautiful what you're saying. I completely agree with everything that you're saying, Hannah. Right. Right. Wit. I think, like, there's really no answer to the question because if the inside, I mean, the outside of the church is what corrupts the inside, and then the inside of the church doesn't allow the church to deal with the outside, so they're both, like, equally important. Yeah, yeah, definitely both have equal importance to make sure that we're vigilant and protecting um, from from without and from within. Um, But now let's, and, and just... Kind of going a little bit deeper into this question here, into this thought. What should, we're Baptists, okay, so Presbyterians would, would disagree. Um, I'm thinking of my friend right now who would disagree with what I'm about to say and what, what I'm trying to get you to think through. But we're Baptists, so we have a distinct understanding of what a church is. What is a church? Yeah, people, but people who are defined by what? Yeah, people who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and because we're Baptists, what does that mean? To be a member of a Baptist church, what also? You have to have been baptized as a believer, right? So we are people who have made a profession of faith in Christ who have been baptized. That is a, that is a new covenant church from a Baptist lens, okay? So in a very real sense, think about it. Now follow me here. And would I completely agree with the, the external attacks? Because it may come where the government... Or say there's a, just an influx of Islam in America or something like that. There may be a time in American history where the church is getting persecuted from the outside, and, and that's going to make life hard. Or um, even today, people get influenced by negative lifestyle practices or theological or just um, worldview beliefs that come from that come from the secular world. That that is all very true. However, what I would say is that if if the church is made up, if it's a true, healthy, biblical church where, for the most part, everybody in there is a true believer who has made a profession of faith, they've been baptized, they're members in good standing, even if the church persecutes them, even if false ideas and false lifestyle practices try to infiltrate it, as Lily said, if it's a healthy, biblically grounded church, we're going to stand together and say, no, that's sinful, or no, that's not true, or no, we don't care if you put us to death, government, or throw us in jail, government, because we're, we're followers of Christ. Jesus is our Lord and Master. We will obey him. Um, we'll stand together. And guys, that's what you need. By the way, as we're on this topic, and Lily hit the nail right on the head, only true, biblical, healthy churches will be able to withstand persecution from the outside. If, if the government starts showing up to haul believers, or I should say, haul professing believers off to jail, 
you'll know immediately who's real and who's not. If it's a false church, they're going to sit back and say, you know what? No, we can acquiesce so we don't go to jail. We don't want to die for what we believe. So no, we'll, we'll, we'll do whatever that we're told to do to, to, so we can continue to play our little game of religion. If it's a true church that's rooted and ground on the word of God, we'll say, you know what? Let, let's pray for these people who are persecuting us. And then if they want to throw us in jail or if it gets even to the point of putting us to death, we'll go willingly because we know we're going home to, to be with the Lord in glory. That's what we learned about from Polycarp and Ignatius and some of the other figures from our previous lessons. So a, only true biblical churches will be able to withstand hardship from the outside. Um, but we do need to be vigilant in protecting ourselves from the outside. So, Whit, I agree with you in that respect, 100%. Um, but internal, I want to I note on that. When what Lily said, she started to go in, a, in, a, in another direction, which I want to revisit here. Um, why, do you think, why do you think it's dangerous for the health of a church, for false doctrine and indifference to whether it be church discipline or holiness, uh, holy lifestyles, or um, just living a distinctly Christian ethic inside the church. Why do you think it's dangerous for those things to be challenged from within? Right. It's, I mean, like we can disagree on things that are not like crucial to salvation, you know? Right. But there's like the, it starts with like the little resentments between people, you know? And yep. slowly tears people apart. And how can we witness to people if we can't even be unified? That's right. That's exactly right. If the world who doesn't know God sees a church body who can't even peacefully coexist with one another, who can't even come to a shared consensus about the essentials of what they believe and how they're going to live, will they want anything to do with it? Absolutely not. They're going to look at that and say, that's a sham. They're, they're, they can't even... I, you, know, you know what's sad? Is in, is in when you look at a lot of churches today... There are more upright unbelievers who hate God and want nothing to do with religion than those inside the church walls. And they look at the church and they say, I, I know atheists that are far better people than them. So the way the church acts internally and what we believe as a unit, that has a big impact on your effectiveness to witness before your community family, friends, and, and really globally as well. And the, the broader church, I'm talking the, the vast array of self-identifying churches in America, it's a joke largely to a lot of unbelievers. They look at uh, what self-identifies as Christians today and they say, that, that, that is just a laughing stock. I want nothing to do with that. They can't even agree on what they believe. They can't agree on what's true or false doctrine. They certainly don't live like they're living for the glory of the God they supposedly exist. They live worse than my unbelieving fr friends and family. So I believe, to circle the wagons, I believe at this time in history, at this specific time in 2022, I believe the greatest danger that the church faces is internal. Because we still live in an era where Christians don't have to pay a huge price at least in America. Christians don't have to pay a huge price to be visible, public, active, and living out their faith. Most, I mean, still to this day, I mean, it's, it's gotten worse over the last couple of decades, but most people don't care enough about, you know, what Christians believe to, to really react negatively to it. Most people, they look and say, well, I mean, yeah, I think it's a sham, and I think it's it's all ridiculous. But hey, if that's what makes you happy, you know, kind of go and, and and do what you want. Go do what you need to do, right? Uh, especially in the South, you know, if we were in California or Washington State or Maine or um, the Northeast, we'd probably see a little bit more hostility. There'd probably be a little bit more of a cost. But here in South Texas, people are still in that mindset of well, you know, they they kind of just. They believe that stuff and makes them happy, so it's all good. So I, I think for now, 
we're in an, we're in a time where the internal threat is greatest, but that could change. We know, we don't know what the Lord has in store, but that's again, Lily hit the nail right on the head. We got to be ready to stand together. And it starts with having a pure, united, and biblically grounded church. Local churches need to be biblically grounded and prepared to stand together so that if attacks do come from the outside, we're ready. Well, I'm going to give you those two blanks now. We'll at least get some of the lesson done uh, (laughs) for you guys. The curriculum notes that God has always raised up leaders in the church to respond to both external and internal attacks. The first blank is apologetics. Apologetics, coming from a Greek word meaning legal defense, refers to the defense of the faith in the face of external attack. And the key text that's noted there is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So would somebody like to read that from their workbook? So that I got a very small pool of people. Thanks, Lily. Now, I know that I've said this many times. I probably sound like a broken record. But do you remember the context in which Peter gives that charge? What's going on to those Christians that he's writing First Peter to? They're being persecuted, right? Do you remember who the Roman, Empo- or the Roman emperor was at that time? Caesar. Well, that's what they called him. What? Augustus? No. No. Nero, there it is. So, right, Nero is the emperor of Rome. These Christians are being persecuted at the very beginning of 1 Peter. He's being scattered. Did he say Nero? I didn't hear him say Nero. Good job, Michael. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Hannah's not the only uh, star student here today. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, hey, so, okay, so Nero, Nero is the Roman emperor, okay? And as the beginning of 1 Peter notes... He's right of Christians that have been scattered abroad, right? Because they're being persecuted. And they're in, very, in a very real sense, they're being hunted down for their faith. And just to make sure you don't forget who this emperor was, this is the guy that would feed these Christians to wild animals in the Roman Colosseum. This is the guy who would, light them, who, who would put them on a stake, light them on fire as human torches, and use them as light for his um, royal parties that he would have at his emperor palace this is a very wicked man hated christianity he actually burned down part of the roman empire and blamed it on the christians so he could have an excuse to persecute them that's that's nero okay now peter says hey don't fear their don't fear their intimidation don't be troubled but sanctify christ as lord in your heart set him apart remember who your lord is and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Hey, when you're being persecuted, when you're being led away to be put to your death, Peter says, you be ready to testify about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give a reasoned explanation. Give a defense for the hope that is in you. But here's how I want you to do it, Peter says. I want you to do it with gentleness and reverence. How many times... Has somebody treated you poorly and immediately you just want to get right back at them? You want to snap back? You want to, you want to one-up them, right? You say, you know, you think you got the best of me? Let me one-up you and I'll show you, right? You know what Peter says to do? I want you to be gentle. I want you to be respectful. I want you to be loving towards those who are literally going to lead you to your own execution. That's apologetics. But there's a second blank here that we need to get to. And that word is polemics. Let me spell that for y'all. P-O-L-E-M-I-C-S. Polemics. The word polemics comes from a Greek word that means war. And polemics refers to theological disputation or debate. It speaks of contending for the truth in the face of internal attack from false teaching. And a key verse in this regard is 2 Corinthians 10.5, 1 
where the Apostle Paul talks about casting down the false arguments of his opponents. And if one of you three ladies would be willing to read 2 Corinthians 10.5 for the class. Amen. So the way that this lesson is going to unfold, and it's probably going to be, lesson four is probably going to be several weeks for us if I had to guess. But the way this lesson is going to unfold is we're going to look at the most famous apologist during the patristic era, a man by the name of Justin. They called him Justin Martyr. His last name wasn't Martyr, but he was put to death for his faith as is often the case with many people who were uh, Christians during the patristic era. But we're going to learn about Justin Martyr. He is the most famous apologist from the patristic era. And we're going to learn about several other polemicists. And those individuals will be covered in the weeks to come. Hopefully we can get through some of Justin today. Actually, we're probably not going to get to Justin today. It looks like we're running out of time. But we will get to a few beliefs that were common about Christians during the patristic era. Some common beliefs that Christians had to deal with as they sought to be public witnesses for Christ during the patristic era. So let's go over those now. You should be in Roman numeral 2 in your workbook. Roman numeral 2. And Dr. Busnitz, in introducing this portion of the curriculum, notes that the Lord Jesus Christ promised that his followers would be hated by unbelievers in the world. Would somebody be willing to read John 15, 18 and 2 Timothy 3, 12? So take that side, take John 15, 18. Uh, Wit, you can take 2 Timothy 3, 12. These are two key texts that emphasize how faithful believers can expect persecution and hatred by unbelievers in the world. And if I could just say this as they're flipping to these texts, if you, if you profess faith in Christ, but you model a continual lifestyle pattern of animosity, even up to the point of hatred towards other people who profess faith in Christ, that is probably evidence that you're not a true believer. One of the marks of true saving faith is a love for God's people and a willingness to be united and to be reconciled and, and to have a good, positive relationship with them and with one another as, 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 as much as it depends on you. You should be willing to do whatever it takes for your relationships with other believers to be marked by love and respect and peace. But that was a minor vignette there. Sai, whenever you're ready, go ahead and read John 15, 18 for us, please. If the world hates you, you know that it is hated me before it hated you. There you go. Jesus said, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. It hated me first. And you're my followers. So a slave is not greater than his master, right? Wit, 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he's writing that, remember, he's writing... Um, that letter to Timothy in the 60s, Nero is the emperor there. He was watching that come true over and over and over again. Now, to be sure, persecution ebbs and flows throughout church history. There's times where it's more severe. There's times where it's less severe. So it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to lose your life for your faith. You could, but persecution comes in many different shapes and sizes. I think we've all become aware of that in our discussions on this subject. But moving on now, there are four primary rumors, four primary public misconceptions about what Christians believed floating around during the patristic era. If you study church history at, at any, um, at any, at any um, sizable length, if you take the time to dive deep into church history, you'll find that these four false beliefs about Christianity pervaded much of the Roman Empire. So to understand what Christians were facing during the first 500 years of church history, it's imperative for us to be aware of these 
false rumors and beliefs and misconceptions that were associated with the church during this portion of history. So let's look at those four now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give the word, and you three ladies are going to have to read three of those bullet points, and then uh, one of you boys, um, we're gonna, you're just going to read from my book because I want you guys to have to participate also. Okay? So um, the first bullet point, and uh, Lily, I'm going to pick on you first. Lauren, if you'll be willing to take the second. Uh, Hannah, if she hurries up, she'll read one of them. She's not back in time. She'll probably read the fourth. And then um, I think, Charlie, you can read the third if Hannah's not back in time. So the first blank in the workbook for you ladies that are taking notes is atheism. A-T-H-E-I-S-M. And Lily, go ahead and read that bullet point whenever you're ready. Amen. So, okay, so just to review, what is the word that describes a religion that only believes in one God? Monotheism, Monotheism, right? So Christians believe in one God, one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God who eternally exists as three persons. Now, Christians are monotheists. What does that make? The Roman Empire during this time. Polytheists, right? Poly, plural, many. So it was natural. Think about this. The Roman uh, citizens, they had temples. They had idols that they had crafted and formed. They would go into these temples. They would bow down and worship these handcrafted idols. They had many different, and they had some gods, of course, that, that they couldn't necessarily see, but they would still worship them. But the key is, whether it be an idol in, a, in, a, in one of the many temples in the Roman Empire, or whether it be an unseen deity, there were many different gods that the Romans would worship. Okay. Now contrast that with the Christians. They're not going into those temples to worship those idols. They're not ascribing glory and worship to the invisible deity. So it was very easy for the Romans to say, These guys are atheists. They don't believe in any gods. They don't participate in our Roman acts of worship. Well, the reality is, no, they they weren't atheists. They were monotheists. It was a misconception about what Christians believed during that era. The second bullet point is insurrection. I-N-S-U-R-R-E-C-T. I-O-N, insurrection. And Lauren, take that away. Very good. So, do Christians believe that we shouldn't obey governmental authorities do we believe that as Christians no right Romans 13 it's clear that you should always obey the government only if and the only exception is if the government would lead you to commit an act of explicit chapter and verse sin there's the text in Acts 5 we must obey God rather than men when the um Jewish leaders tried to tell the Christians, hey, you're, you're no longer allowed to talk about Jesus. You're no longer allowed to share the gospel. You're no longer allowed to worship him. And they said, no, we've been commanded to worship Jesus. We've been commanded to take his gospel to all the ends of the earth. We will obey God rather than men. Well, there's a difference between being instructed not to worship God in the way he's commanded us to do so and paying your taxes, or if, if I could be a little controversial, wearing a mask when you're asked to do so in a store <laughs> or on a plane or, or, or uh, in, in any other number of venues. There's a difference between 
being told you're not allowed to sing during a church worship service. We've got to do that. We've been commanded to do that. There's a difference between that and saying, hey, you are required to drive the speed limit. You're not allowed to litter, right? There's a difference there. It's not a sin to be told not to litter or to wear a mask in a public place or to drive the speed limit. It is a sin to not share the gospel with the nations. It's a sin to not sing during worship and so on and so forth, right? You've got to draw hard lines. You've got to make hard distinctions between what is an explicit chapter and verse sin issue and just what's simply an area of inconvenience. So as Christians, we are commanded to obey the government, right? Insofar that they're not commanding us to sin. Well, during the Roman Empire, uh, during the days of the Roman Empire, when these false beliefs about the Christians were being circulated, they were being commanded to worship the Roman emperor as Lord and King and Master over all of creation. The, the, the practice of emperor worship was prominent during the patristic era of church history. So when Christians refused to participate in the worship of the Roman emperor, the Romans simply said, well, these guys want to overthrow the Roman Empire. They keep saying that Jesus is Lord and he's king and he's master. Clearly they want to overthrow us. Clearly they aren't loyal citizens. And that just wasn't the case. They were very loyal citizens. They were great citizens. They were obedient citizens. They just simply weren't going to worship the creature in the place of the creator. Okay, that brings us to this third bullet point here. And that bullet point, the blank, is immorality. Immorality. I'm sure you all know how to spell that. And Hannah, I want you to read that bullet point, please. So the Roman Empire was a very, um, it was a society that was really permeated by sexual, um, sexual behavior. In fact, some of their worship to the Roman gods involved uh, sexual orgies in the temples. It was, it was a gross, incestuous society, often had um, fathers having sexual relations with daughters, mothers with sons. It was, it was gross. Of course, there was rape of slaves, and, and it was a very horrific society, particularly with a bent towards sexual promiscuity. And it was interesting that the Romans would use this as a means of trying to propagate rumors and misconceptions about the Christians because the Christians had a distinct sexual ethic, right? Sex is to be between one man and one woman exclusively in the covenant of marriage, right? Paul goes to great lengths to teach that. Ephesians 5, um, Jesus, Matthew 19. Paul forbids uh, incest in 1 Corinthians 5 and into 6. There are several places where the New Testament goes to great lengths to define a robust Christian ethic of sexual activity. So what the Romans did, though, was they heard rumors about communion. That's what the phrase love feast refers to. It refers to how the Christians would come together to partake of the Lord's Supper and to share a meal together after a worship service. They took that phrase, coined by Christians, and said, look, they're just like us. They engage in the same sexual deviancy that we do. They're no different. So, yeah, very hypocritical. Yeah. Well, what they basically did was say, hey, they, they're judgmental. They, they want to say that, they, they're, that, that they're the, the, the believers of the one true living God, but I mean, they're, they're engaging in love feasts. They're doing what we do at the temple. They have their own incestuous acts of, of sexual activity. They, they perform their own acts of sexual immorality during their worship services. And then, of course, you know, the brother and sister references, of course, um, you can only imagine where the thoughts... We're going with those phrases. 
But immorality, that was another false misconception that was being propagated during the patristic era about Christians. And lastly, and I think this might be the most shocking of all, cannibalism. Cannibalism. C-A-N-N-I-B-A-L-I-S-M. Cannibalism. And Charlie, I want you to read what I have highlighted here to the class. Right next to the word cannibalism, right there. Right Right there, yeah. Starting with perhaps. Perhaps most shocking of all, Christians were even accused of being cannibals. This rumor was sparked by a misunderstanding of the Lord's table. When outsiders heard phrases that this is my body and this is my blood, they failed to understand their symbolic meaning. Very good. Now, it's interesting, though, that Roman Catholics to this day commit the very, <laughs> they commit the very practice that um, these first century Christians were being accused of. If you take their view of transubstantiation to its logical conclusion, think about it. If the, if the bread and the wine literally turns into the body and blood of Jesus... You are literally committing the act of cannibalism. You are eating another person, right? Uh, another human being. So uh, if you do take it in a transubstantiation way, this critique may be somewhat warranted, although it, it wouldn't be in technically the same sense that the Romans thought. Like The Romans literally thought that every time they would gather, they were eating another human being. They didn't really understand uh, that... that uh, Theoretically, it would be the body and blood of Jesus. I mean, there's all kinds of rumors. Man, these guys would meet up together. Who's the poor soul they're eating today, right? That, that probably was the mindset there. Um, all kinds of rumors and misconceptions floating around about the Christians in the patristic era in this respect. But, you know, of course, we don't believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation as Baptists. We believe that the bread and the juice are literally just bread and juice. And that although Jesus is present at the Lord's table by the Holy Spirit, right? He's omnipresent in his divine nature. He fills all of creation with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The blood, or excuse me, the, the bread and the juice, they're not changed. We're not literally eating the body and blood of Christ. Or I should say drinking the blood. We're not literally drinking the blood and eating the body of Christ. We're just eating a cracker and juice. We're drinking the juice, right? These are just ordinary elements it's symbolic of what the disciples did in the upper room and even when think about this even when the disciples were in the upper room think about this think about how transubstantiation falls flat when jesus was sitting up there in the upper room and he broke the bread and he took the cup that was just bread and the cup was just wine it wasn't grape juice, it was wine. We can be honest, even though it makes Baptists uncomfortable sometimes. Jesus drank wine, the disciples drank wine. Um, when he took the bread and he took the wine, it was just bread and it was just wine. When he said, this is my body, the disciples didn't actually think that that became his body. They said, okay, this is, this is a picture. Just like the Passover, this is a picture. And this wine... This is not his blood. This is real wine. We're going to taste the wine when we drink it. It's a symbolic picture of Christ's blood being shed at the cross. So, again, false belief, false rumor that Christians were cannibals. And as we'll learn next week, Lord willing, it was in response to these false, rumor, uh, these false rumors, among others, that a number of early Christian apologists wrote to defend the faith by setting the record straight. And the most well-known of those apologists that we'll be learning about was a man by the name of Justin, and historically, of course, known as Justin Martyr. Well, as we see, there is great danger, and there is great lasting repercussions when rumors are circulated. It causes great harm and great pain to those who are on the receiving end of the rumor. So although, guys, I think the takeaway before we uh, dismiss, before we close in prayer, even though we're not doing the kind of things that the Romans were doing towards Christians, we need to be careful about rumors ourselves. Because if you spread gossip and rumors about somebody and, and they're not true and it spreads like wildfire, 
You're causing great harm to the person that you're spreading those falsehoods about. Great harm. And it takes a long time for the truth to come out. Sometimes that person won't even be alive by the time the truth comes out. Like it it might take years for the truth to come out. So be very, very careful if you spread news that you hear that you haven't yourself verified as being 100% true or accurate. The results can be devastating. Let's close in prayer, though, as we prepare for corporate worship and we'll be dismissed. Our Lord and God, we are grateful again for the lesson that we had today, for the privilege it was to expound the truths that are contained in just two verses of the book of Jude and to talk a little bit about some of the false beliefs that were rampant during the patristic era. And although there are many such false beliefs today, we, we recognize that you were the God of truth and that even though there may be great damage from the spreading of rumors and falsehoods, and even though we may ourselves, if we're on the receiving end of falsehood and gossip and slander, we ourselves may never be vindicated. But we know, Father, that vengeance belongs to you and that in your timing, even if it's on the last day, You will vindicate all truth, all righteousness. All men will be found to be liars and you will be found to be true. And Father, I pray that that would be enough for us as we strive to serve you well in this world. I pray for the rest of this Lord's Day that it would be refreshing to us spiritually, that our time of corporate worship would be a time of encouragement for us. And Lord, that as we look to begin a new week, that we would be good stewards of all the responsibilities you've entrusted to us so that we might be your faithful ambassadors before watching world. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.